0: Malicious misdirection served up from unpatched WordPress sites. A big, big set of dating site records has been found exposed online. It's in China, but the records seem to belong to anglophones. Many other files are exposed elsewhere, too, so it's not a single problem. Hurl is back and still after diplomats. The International Red Cross proposes rules for cyber conflict, and Baltimore City calculates the cost of not patching. It's a lot higher than the cost of patching. From the CyberWire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, May 30th, 2019. Zscaler reports finding a campaign of malicious redirection from WordPress sites in the wild. Those responsible are exploiting a cross-site scripting vulnerability in the platform's widely used WP Live Chat support plugin. It's not a widespread attack, Zscaler says, not yet anyway but the attackers have demonstrated the ability to redirect victims to malicious sites that serve up pop-ups, phony error messages, and bogus subscription pages. The domain used to inflict all of this stuff is BlackAwardAgo, a domain registered just two weeks ago on May 16th. Coincidentally, that's the day after WP Live chat support developers released version 8.0.27 of their software, which closed the vulnerability exploited in the BlackAwardAgo campaign. Users running current versions of WP Live chat support should be okay. It's another object lesson in the importance of patching. The city mothers and fathers of Baltimore should take notice, but more on Baltimore later. Another database has been found exposed online. This one, a Chinese set of 45.2 million records culled from online data sites. Jeremy Fowler of Security Discovery found the exposed data. The Lovelorn and Hopeful in this case are mostly English-speaking, as Fowler's sampling of the data suggests. Moreover, most of them appear to be Americans. In any case, a number of quite disparate appearing dating apps were using the same exposed depository. Fowler attempted to look up the domain owner, and he had some success. Unfortunately, the address listed was for Line 1, Langzhao, which is a metro station in the subway line serving the community of Langzhao. He stopped short of saying that this is some sort of malicious effort, but he does offer a cautionary note. Quote, "...call me old-fashioned, but I remain skeptical of apps that are registered from a metro station in China." End quote. Well, in fairness to the app makers, sometimes you have to work from wherever you can get Wi-Fi. One of our stringers once had to file from a Starbucks in a Safeway in a Washington metro station because he couldn't get connectivity from the National Defense University... Sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do, and it's an app-eat-app app world out there, friends. Still, the number one to Leng Zhao probably isn't the love train, either. But the dating apps themselves might well arouse a degree of skepticism, if only because they seem to cater to very different clienteles that probably have negligible overlap. For instance, to take Fowler's partial list, there might be a degree of commonality of interest between users of Mingler, an interracial dating app, and Christian's Finder, which, as its name suggests, would seem to cater to Christian singles looking for potential soulmates. But Christian Finder is unlikely to share many users with cougar dating, for cougars and spirited young men, as the site itself proclaims, and still less with FWBs, that is, friends with benefits. Some of the preferences realized in the site's Fowler himself hesitates to speculate about, although he does, but we'll pass over this in silence, as we're a family show. Whoever's working from that subway station, they've been busily collecting a lot of information that might be useful to various shady advertising enterprises, or to criminals, or even to state intelligence services. Digital Shadows shares some glum perspective, unrelated to cougar dating or talk birdie to me, which we think must be an app for frisky Baltimore Orioles fans, but that perspective is relevant nonetheless. The company thinks some 2.3 billion files are similarly exposed. Some of that information is just the small change chicken feed of the digital exhaust we distribute around cyberspace, but the other data may be practically gold. They found those files among the usual suspects SMB enabled file shares, misconfigured network attached storage devices, file transfer protocol and rsync servers, and Amazon S3 buckets. Admins everywhere look to your configurations. The city of San Francisco recently passed legislation banning the use of facial recognition software and other related technologies. Civil libertarians see this as a step in the right direction, while some in law enforcement feel they may be losing an effective crime-fighting tool. Matt Aldridge is a solutions architect at Webroot, and he offers these thoughts.
1: This announcement from, from San Francisco, it's it covers the facial recognition technology, but it seems to also cover things like license plate recognition as well. So it's kind of quite a broad decree they've made, and, and it's relating to the municipal service providers, so the police and the transportation, things like that. And the technology there, so with the license plates, obviously, is pretty straightforward Re- reading those and processing that for things like parking violations, and traffic violations, things like that. On the police side, they're using it for facial recognition. And, and th- th- obviously, to do that, they need to keep a database of people of interest and the facial uh, characteristics of, of those people in order to find a match when their officers are out and about using body cameras or they're using cameras on infrastructure around. Uh,
0: There are concerns from both a civil liberties side of things, but also a technical side as well?
1: Absolutely. There's different streams of concern, like you say. So technically, the technology isn't perfect, and it does have false positives. But also, and probably more concerning is the fact that there's a lot of sensitive data being collected and stored, and that needs to be adequately protected. And, And in many cases, it isn't. And the kind of appreciation isn't there for the sensitive nature of the biometric information that's that's being collected and profiled around people that's the technical side is really the how do you protect and secure that information what kind of controls should there be about the retention of that information how long should you keep these records and then on the social side it's more about people's privacy about avoiding situations in the future where government policies may change and and this information could be used in kind of aggressive ways to pursue political goals rather than purely for the kind of security goals that it was originally envisaged so so there's a lot of concerns out there both from a technical and a social perspective.
0: Yeah, I've seen some reporting also that there seems to be the facial recognition software is less accurate when it comes to certain groups of people, like people of color, even sometimes with women. The hit rate is not as high as it is with other groups.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, some of that comes down to just the sort of physics of capturing the light and things like that. Other things are to do with the, the way the machine learning is, is trained and the kind of volume of data that it's been exposed to when it's doing this sort of recognition, environmental conditions, weather, uh, day, night, all these things can, can affect the systems. Um, so, you know, they're far from perfect. Um, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily a huge issue as long as the systems are used in in the, the proper way. And as long as the, limitations are understood by the likes of law enforcement so that they don't rely on it in the same way as you don't necessarily rely on a kind of polygraph test or something like that. These things are there for kind of guidance, but they can't be used, or they shouldn't be used as as a kind of convicting a a person before they've even gone on trial. Um, it's, It's very imperfect technology.
0: Do you suppose this will be first of many? Do we suspect that other cities will follow
1: suit? Possibly, yes. Possibly certain cities may do. I would hope that some will start to at least have the conversations and start to legislate for how these things should be, if they are allowed, the controls that need to be put in place around them to minimise the risk of breaches of the sensitive personal information that's being gathered, and also to control how that data is retained, ensuring it's being purged properly, ensuring that any third parties involved are properly vetted and monitored and things like that.
0: That's Matt Aldridge from Webroot. Security firm ESET is taking a close look at the Turla threat actors' latest capers, many involving PowerShell exploits. Turla, often called Snake, or more classically Uroburos, is a long-running Trojan-wielding espionage campaign that for the most part goes after diplomatic targets. It's thought to be the work of one of the bears, our friends over in the Russian intelligence services. The International Committee of the Red Cross has released a study of the potential humanitarian costs of cyber operations. The report cites, as part of its motivation, the need to address the effect of incidents such as WannaCry, NotPetya, and attacks on the Ukrainian grid have on delivery of essential goods and services to civilian populations. It also cites the increased willingness to conduct offensive cyber operations by countries other than Russia and North Korea. The ICRC study is intended to inform the laws of armed conflict of how new cyber technologies might be constrained to ameliorate suffering from operations in this newly contested domain. The topic is an important one. As infrastructure that delivers goods and services human beings need, just insofar as they're human beings—water, food, medical care, power— it's important to consider how to prevent attacks on that infrastructure from hitting uninvolved civilians. The Red Cross study, to which a number of cybersecurity firms contributed, is intended to be a step in that direction. Did we mention Baltimore up at the top of the show? We did. Anywho, coming back to news about Charm City, Baltimore thinks the ransomware attack on the city's systems will cost it around eighteen million dollars when all is said and done. That's according to the Baltimore Sun. The city's budget office presented this estimate to the City Council yesterday. The city's IT department has already spent $4.6 million on recovery since the attack hit on May 7th. It thinks it will spend an additional $5.4 million by the end of 2019. These are direct remediation costs, and they're confined to this year. Whether additional charges will pop up and whether the city will be paying for fixes into 2020 remains to be seen, but some city council members think these preliminary figures are likely to go up. So if you're keeping score, that comes to $10 million. Where will the other $8.2 million go? That represents an estimate of lost and at least delayed revenue from such sources as property taxes, real estate fees, fines, water bills, and so on. These two may also be lowball estimates. We're just spitballing here, but we guess it would have cost less to patch those systems two years ago. You know what else? You could probably even pay for regular secure backup And joining me once again is Craig Williams. He's the director of Talos Outreach at Cisco. Craig, it's great to have you back. Um, You all recently published a report here. uh, It was titled, Talos Releases Coverage for Wormable
2: Microsoft Vulnerability. What's going on here? Well, this is one of those, you know, once every few years vulnerability that comes out where just by the sheer nature of the vulnerability, anyone with a security background is going to immediately have the hair stand up in the back of their neck. Um, If you're not familiar with RDP, it's basically the remote desktop protocol, which is what allows you to connect to computers remotely in Windows. Hmm. Because of that, many, many people, and even smart people, and even security-conscious organizations, have exposed it to the Internet for one reason or another. Hmm. I want to be clear here, that's a bad idea. <laughs> okay. Don't, There's don't no ambiguity. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. Okay. Um, but they have perhaps for troubleshooting or to allow someone to work remotely. Uh, they forgot to close the firewall hole when they were done doing something. Uh, and so if you look at, you know, a Shodan scan of the internet before this advisory came out, I think there was over a million of these exposed to the internet. And so it gets worse, right? Uh, now, normally when this type of vulnerability would happen, only a very, very tiny subset of operating systems would be affected, right? If you look back with, like, WannaCry, uh, the WannaCry vulnerability, it was a large number of systems affected, but a relatively small subset of Windows. In uh, this particular one, if I remember correctly, it's everything older than Windows 7 and including Windows 7. Hmm. Yeah, that's, it's not a good scenario. Well, let's dig into some of the specifics here. What, what, uh, what is this capable of doing? Well, it's going to get remote code execution, uh, and it runs as system, so it's pretty much complete compromise of everything. So walk,
0: walk me through here. Just uh, I want to rewind and, and just cover some of the basics here. So I've opened up
2: my system to the Internet with RDP. Someone can then do what? Well, it's unauthenticated, so they don't need a user, they don't need a password, they can simply be scanning the Internet, which we know they are now. We're seeing a huge number of systems scanning the Internet. Uh, And once they see it, they can send a certain special sequence of instructions and achieve remote code execution, and then potentially have their malware run on your box with system-level privileges, which will give it access to everything. It's just about as bad as it gets, and it's affecting a tremendous amount of Windows machines on the internet just because it covers so many versions. Hmm. And unfortunately, much like SMB, while it should really never be exposed to the internet, it very, very often is, even in organizations that you would help you would hope know better. And so what are the recommendations here? What do you all at uh, Talos uh, suggesting people do? Well, uh, you know, obviously the first one is patch. Now, obviously patching is not always uh, available for everything, you know, and then there's also the caveat of, well, are you really sure you patched all the machines? So while I would say try and patch, it's also important that you make sure that you don't have that port open on your firewall. And, you know, also make sure that it, somebody's not running it just on a different port. We see that a lot. People think they're clever because they run it on like X plus one port. And it's it's not a great solution because people who scan for it can see that identified as well. Now, you all have published uh, some snort rules with this? Yes. So the exploit scenario, and I think as of recording this, there's no public exploits. So we're not going to give away all the details. Uh, but several security companies have designed private exploits. We've identified code paths that have to be taken in order to get code execution. And so what we're detecting is basically something that would be required for an attacker to actually get code execution. And so if everything's working correctly, we're going to block those attempts using firepower and the storm rules before the actual malware code gets to the system. Hmm. So this is an important distinction. I'd love to discuss it with you, right? A, A lot of people don't understand how people write signatures for an intrusion prevention system. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're if you're just trying to be fast and if you don't really understand what you're seeing, you know, I've seen some vendors who will literally cut and paste a string out of the malware and they'll be like, done, covered. Hmm. That's bad. <laughs> How come? <laughs> well, I mean, think about the way that malware can be designed, right? Uh, you know, at a really high level, malware can be as creative as a book, right? Anything you could write in the book is perfectly valid. And so trying to just string off a piece of that book it's pointless, right? The next sample could be completely different. So instead, if you look a little deeper, well, how is the malware getting loaded? That's where you find what we would call the vulnerability. And so if you can find the condition that actually causes the remote code execution or a condition before that that's sufficiently rare that it would never be used legitimately and we can actually block that, then it never matters what the malware payload is. We're always going to block the condition necessary for that malware payload to get executed and so by doing that, we can actually write one signature and cover all the variants, as opposed mm. to having to write, you know, potentially an infinite number of malware signatures. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, this is a, this is a serious one. This is a biggie. It's about as bad as it gets. Yeah. I mean, you know, when Microsoft puts out their advisory and then immediately puts out a blog post about the next warmable Microsoft vulnerability, you should panic. if not panic at least pay attention right (laughs) yes your your hair should stand up you should turn on the coffee machine and you should sit down and read go to the talus blog read check out your podcast make sure that we're all on the same page and then deploy some protections all right fair enough craig williams thanks for joining us